Here's an honest question. How are you supposed to know what to do with your money? Very few of us are exposed to meaningful advice on how to manage our finances. Even fewer have the means to get professional financial guidance. Betterment is a platform that was built to do something radical, to give accessible financial advice that puts you first. If you're like most Americans, your money is probably sitting in a savings account, likely earning you next to nothing. Maybe you have an investment account that you're not really sure what to do with. Betterment can help you make sense of what to do with your money. Investing involves risk, but you don't have to know the ins and the outs of the stock market to start investing for your future. Betterment's technology will put your money to work choosing the stocks and strategies that are right for you because we know you have other things to do. Betterment's platform can even provide guidance on what financial goals make sense for you. Give your money a new home with Betterment, peace of mind included. Download the Betterment app today. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-M-E-N-T for the betterment of you. I'm about to tell you something more terrifying than anything I've ever shared on Weird Darkness. Someone in your family could, right now, be playing a dangerous game of Russian roulette. Five people every hour die of a drug overdose, ten per hour from alcohol abuse. If someone you know suffers from depression, they might be using without you even knowing it. Don't find out too late. If you even suspect they might be using, call and learn what you can do to help them escape the dark. Call 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. With the FMLA, that person can even take a leave of absence from their job to get help and keep their job so they can return to it. 1-800-273-8255. 1-800-273-8255. Welcome to the Weekend Archives of Weird Darkness. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Welcome, Weirdos. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future uploads. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the Weird Darkness. Shortly after my husband and I moved into the house that we lived in for 18 years with our two small sons and my 13-year-old daughter, we went grocery shopping and took our boys with us. When we got home, my daughter was in quite a panic because she had thought the house was being burglarized. While we were gone, she heard what sounded like teenage boys running up the stairs talking to each other. Her room was on the third floor. We could find no indication that anyone had broken in and the doors and windows were still locked. Four years later, my husband and the boys were camping for the weekend and my daughter was staying at a friend's house. I was awoken at 3 a.m. by the same sounds. It sounded like they were carrying metal objects that clanged together and I was terrified that we were being burglarized. 
I laid there listening to them until 3.30 a.m., exactly a half hour, when suddenly the noise just stopped. It didn't fade away, it simply abruptly stopped. I went back to sleep, woke at 6.30 a.m. and checked all the doors and windows, which were still locked. These weren't isolated incidents. Many other strange things happened in that house over the years. For one thing, when the boys were small, they saw what they described as a little blue man zipping up the stairs from the first floor. We moved out of that house in 2008. I haven't had a single paranormal experience since. In the summer of 1978, I was five or six years old and living with my grandparents. I often played in an open field right next to my grandparents' house. One day, while playing there alone, I got bored and decided to go inside the house. For some reason that I can't remember, when I got to the front steps of the house, I looked back to the spot where I'd been playing before. To my surprise, there was this thing standing there. It was wearing a long, black robe with a hood over its head, and the sleeves covered its hands. If the figure had hands, it wasn't entirely clear. The creature, whatever it was, was completely solid. It was looking out toward the river. I was only five and I didn't know what it was, so I wasn't scared. I was wondering what it was and how it got there all of a sudden. I had a good, long view of it, like for about almost a minute when it seemed to sense me looking at it and slowly turned to look at me. Where a face should have been, there was just blackness, and in my little kid's mind I knew that blackness was not a good thing. For a few more seconds, we looked at each other and in a blink of an eye, it vanished. I could still see the blackness that should have been its face to this day when I closed my eyes. I stood there a little while longer, then went inside to the kitchen where my grandmother was doing dishes. I tried to tell her what I saw, but I had no other words to describe it except for the word monster. When I got older, I asked if there were any old buildings on that field before my time. My grandparents told me it was an old farmer's field, and before that, nothing else, just empty land. I never did find out what that thing wanted or what it was doing there, or what it was exactly. I never saw it again. I don't want to see it again. This weekend archive of Weird Darkness returns in just a moment. Real life is always scarier than fiction, and if you are drowning in debt and you owe money to the IRS, that's absolutely terrifying. I should know, early in our marriage, Robin and I ended up owing the IRS $10,000. We thought we'd lose the house. 
Well, here in 2019, the IRS recently hired private debt collection agencies to start collecting your outstanding taxes. They already have the power to garnish your wages and put liens on your property and start collecting your outstanding taxes by levying your bank account. Fortunately, you have something that I didn't. There are new IRS tax forgiveness programs that can help you free yourself from these debt collectors. Call Civic Tax Relief at 800-590-5579 to protect you from the IRS collection agencies. That's 800-590-5579. Stop the added fees and wage garnishments and finally break free from the IRS. Call Civic Tax Relief for free information right now to take your life back with their Fresh Start program. They continually get four-star reviews from people that they've helped, and now they can help you. The call is free, the consultation is free, the information is free. They could save you thousands of dollars and keep the IRS at bay. Call Civic Tax Relief at 800-590-5579. That's 800-590-5579. This happened to me a couple of years ago. I had just moved out of my parents' house and was living in a house in New Jersey. I was home one night watching TV and had the porch door open. It was getting later and I kept thinking about closing it. I got up to close up the house for the night and my dog started growling, which turned into barking. He was going crazy at the porch door but wasn't going outside to investigate. I looked over and a boy was standing there. He was about 12 and didn't say anything. He just stood, staring at me. I asked him who he was and he didn't say anything. I asked again and he just looked at me and asked to come in. By this point, I was absolutely terrified. I thought this boy was going to kill me even though he was just a young kid. I couldn't see his eyes as it was dark so I didn't think for a second there was any reason to be scared. It was when I turned on the light that I saw his eyes. They were totally black. I felt as though I'd been hit in the stomach with a baseball bat. I felt completely winded. He asked to come in again. I told him he couldn't. He just stared at me. I was in pain by this point and could hardly stand. Then he was gone. I stood up, closed the door, and never left it open again late at night. This was not a person. It was a demon of some kind, and I was so lucky to have survived. I felt the life being sucked from my body. I've never read about an experience like this before.
The small town of Milstadt is located just a few miles from Belleville, a long-established and prosperous town that is located across the Mississippi River from St. Louis. Milstadt has always been known as a quiet community. It was settled long ago by German immigrants who came to America to work hard, be industrious, and keep to themselves. It was a place where nothing bad could ever really happen. Or at least that's what the residents there in the latter part of the 19th century believed. However, the murders that occurred on Saxtown Road forever shattered that illusion. When a local German family was brutally slaughtered in 1874, it created a dark, unsolved mystery and a haunting that continues today. On March 19, 1874, Carl Stelzenried, age 70, his son Frederick, 35, Frederick's wife, Anna, 28, and their children, Carl, 3, and Anna, 8 months, were found brutally murdered in their home on Saxton Road located outside of Milstadt. The grisly crime was discovered by a neighbor, Benjamin Schneider, who had arrived at the Stelzenried home earlier that morning to collect some potato seeds from Carl Stelzenried. As he approached the home, he found that the area was eerily still. The horses and cattle that were fenced in the front lot had not been watered or fed, and no one was taking care of the morning chores. Schneider knocked on the front door, but no one answered. He called out and looked in the window, but it was too dark inside the house for him to see anything. Finally, he turned the knob and pushed the door open. As he stepped in, he looked down and saw the body of Frederick Stelzenried on the floor, lying in a large pool of blood. The young man had been savagely beaten and his throat had been cut. Three of his fingers had been severed. Panicked, Schneider began looking for the other members of the family. He found Anna and her children lying on a bed. All of them had been bludgeoned to death and Anna's throat had been cut. Her infant daughter, baby Anna, was lying across her chest, her small arms wrapped around her mother's neck. Her son Carl was found next to her. His facial features were unrecognizable because of the brutal blows that he had sustained to his head. All three of them had apparently been murdered as they slept. In a separate bedroom, Schneider found Carl Stelzenried. He had been struck so many times, apparently with an axe, that he was nearly decapitated. His body was sprawled on the blood-stained floor, and it was later surmised that he had been roused from his bed by noises in the house and been struck down as he attempted to come to the aid of his family. As Schneider looked frantically around, he realized that blood was on the floor had sprayed wildly under the walls and even stained the ceiling of the house. He saw chips and indentations in the plaster that were later determined to have been made by a maddox, a combination tool with a head of an axe and a large blade resembling a garden hoe. The only survivor of the carnage was the family dog, Monk. He was found lying on the floor next to Anna's bed, keeping watch over the bodies of the mother and her children. Monk was known to be very protective of the family and downright vicious toward strangers. This fact would lead investigators to believe that the killer, or killers, was someone known to the family. 
they also believed that the killer entered the house through a rear door, killing Anna and the children first. Carl was killed when he heard the struggles in the bedroom and Frederick was killed last. He had been sleeping on a lounge near the front of the house and had been murdered after a hand-to-hand struggle with the murderer. Schneider quickly left and summoned help. The authorities called to nearby Belleville for assistance and several sheriff's deputies and detectives answered the call. Soon after arriving, Deputy Sheriff Hughes discovered footsteps leading away from the house. As they were examined, it was noted that the prints had been made by boots that were cobbled with heavy nails, making them very distinctive. Hughes also found indentations in the ground that looked as though they had been made by someone dragging a heavy axe. He followed the tracks for about a mile, and at the end of the trail, he found a pouch of partially chewed tobacco that was covered with blood. He deduced that the killer had been wounded during his attack on the family and had attempted to stem the bleeding with chewing tobacco, a popular folk remedy that was believed to draw the infection from a cut. The footprints and the bloody tobacco pouch led the police to the home of Frederick Boltz, the brother-in-law of Frederick Stelzenreed. Boltz was married to Anna Stelzenreed's sister, and there had been a dispute between Boltz and Frederick Stelzenreed because $200 that Boltz had borrowed had never been repaid. The two had quarreled over the debt several times. Boltz was friends with an interim farm worker named John Afkin, who had once worked for the Stelzenreed family and who also harbored a grudge against Frederick. Afkin was a large and powerful man who made his living as a grubber, a back-breaking occupation that involved clearing trees and rocks from farm lots. He was considered an expert with an axe, as well as other hand tools, and was feared by many because of his quick temper. He also possessed another characteristic that was of interest to the investigators. He had a full head of light red hair. Carl Stelzenreed had died clutching a handful of hair that was exactly the same color. The bodies of the Stelzenreed family were prepared for burial by ladies from the Zion United Church of Christ in Milstadt. This gruesome task was carried out in the Stelzenreed barn, which still stands on the property today. The corpses were in such horrific condition that a number of the women became sick while washing them and had to be relieved. The killer had savaged the bodies so badly with his axe that the adults were nearly decapitated and the children were bloodied and pummeled beyond recognition. It was brutality like nothing these small town folks had ever seen before. The family was laid to rest on Sunday, March 22nd at Frivagal Cemetery, located just a few miles from their home on Saxtown Road. The news of the horror spread across the region in newspaper accounts and even appeared on the front page of the New York Times. The terror and curiosity that gripped the area brought more than 1,000 people to the Stelzenreed's funeral service. Immediately after the burial, Deputy Hughes arrested Frederick Boltz and John Afkin on suspicion of murder. Boltz initially resisted arrest, but then demanded to be provided with a Bible while locked away in the Belleville City Jail. Afkin, on the other hand, was said to have displayed an uncanny lack of emotion. He accompanied the officers to jail and remained silent while in custody. 
during the coroner's inquest that followed the arrest, Boltz refused to face the jury and when shown photographs of the victims' bodies, he refused to look at them. The two men were brought before a grand jury in April 1874, but the jury was unable to indict them. They believed there was insufficient evidence to connect them to the murders. Both suspects were released a week later. Although the authorities had been unable to indict their main suspects in the case, the investigation into the two men's activities and motives did not come to an end. Investigators believed more strongly than ever that Boltz was somehow involved in the murders, and they based this on the fact that the cash and valuables inside of the Stelzen Reed house had been undisturbed. They believed there was a motive that was darker than mere robbery for the crime, and that Boltz was definitely involved. Just a few days before he was killed, on March 16, Frederick Steltzenried confided to some friends and neighbors that he had just received a substantial inheritance from relatives in Germany. He was at an auction at the time he broke the news, and he was seen carrying a large willow basket that was covered with an oilcloth. Rumor had it that the basket contained the inheritance, which Frederick had collected at the bank just before attending the auction. The Stelzen Reed estate was reportedly worth several thousand dollars at the time of the murder. Investigators surmised that the wholesale slaughter of the family might have been an attempt to wipe out all of the immediate heirs to the estate. They believed that Frederick Boltz, motivated by his dislike for Frederick Stelzen Reed and his belief that he would inherit the money because of his marriage to Anna's sister, had hired John Afkin to commit the murders. It was a viable theory to explain the massacre, but the police were never able to make it stick. Boltz later brought suit against the Stelzen Reed estate in an effort to collect whatever money he could. He was eventually awarded $400, and soon after, he and his family moved away from the area and vanished into history. John Afkin remained in the Milstadt area, and legend has it that he was often seen carrying a gold pocket watch. When asked where he had gotten such an impressive timepiece, because it seemed much nicer than anything he could afford, Afkin would only smile. Some whispered that the pocket watch looked exactly like one that Carl Stetsonreed once owned. The Stetsonreed home was torn down in August 1954. According to a report that appeared in the Milstadt Enterprise newspaper at the time, the owners of the property, Leslie Gines and his family, were glad to tuck the tail out of the way with whatever ghosts are there. The owners found it easy to get rid of the cursed old house. But the ghosts that lingered there were not so easily dismissed. A more recent owner of the property and a house that stands at the site was Randy Eckert. In 2004, he told a reporter from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch that he believed the land where the murders took place was haunted. His first experience occurred one morning when he and his wife were awakened by strange noises. They both heard the sounds of doors opening and closing in the house, although nothing was disturbed. They weren't the only ones to hear something. The family dog, which had been sleeping at the foot of the bed, was also awakened by the mysterious sounds and was terrified and shaking. Eckert added that the sounds were repeated many times over the years, always around the anniversary of the murders. Chris Nauman, 
who rented the house from Eckert in the early 1990s, reported his own chilling occurrences. It was six o'clock in the morning and there was a loud knock on the door. At the same time, my girlfriend heard someone walking up the steps in our basement. Nauman, startled by the sounds, quickly checked the front door and the basement stairs, but found no sign of visitors or intruders. The next day, he shared his story with Randy Eckert, asking him about the anniversary of the Stelson-Reed murders. Eckert confirmed it for him. The ghostly happenings had taken place on March 19, the anniversary of the murders. Nauman still remembers the effect this had on him. A cold shiver ran up my spine. To this day, the slaughter of the Stelzen-Reed family remains unsolved. While many suspects have been suggested over the years, there is no clear answer to the mystery. The area where the house once stood along Saxtown Road has changed very little since 1874, and it's not hard to imagine the sheer terror of those who lived nearby after news of the murders began to spread. It's a lonely, isolated area, and if the stories are to be believed, a haunted one. But what ghosts still walk in this place? Are they the tragic spirits of the Stelson Reeds, still mourning the fact that their deaths have never been avenged? Or do the phantom footsteps and spectral knockings signal the presence of the killer's wicked wraith, perhaps forced to remain here as a penance for the crime that he never answered to while among the living? We may never really know, but for now, the haunting continues and the people of Milstadt continue to remember the day when horror visited their little town. The Winchester Mystery House is a well-known mansion in Northern California. Its name comes up quite often whenever there are discussions about the most haunted buildings in America. It is located at 525 South Winchester Boulevard in San Jose, California. It was once the personal residence of Sarah Winchester, the widow of gun magnate William Wirt Winchester. It was continuously under construction for 38 years and is said to be haunted by various entities. Some psychics have said that there are actually a total of three spirits currently residing in the mansion. Under Winchester's supervision, its construction proceeded around the clock without interruption from 1884 until her death on September 5, 1922, when work immediately ceased. The cost for such constant building has been estimated at about $5.5 million. The Queen Anne-style Victorian mansion is famous for its sheer size and utter lack of a proper construction plan. In fact, many rooms in the house lead to dead ends. The miles of twisting hallways are made even more intriguing by secret passageways in the halls. Mrs. Winchester traveled through her house in a roundabout fashion supposedly to confuse any mischievous ghosts that might be following her. According to popular belief, Winchester believed that the house was haunted by the ghosts of the people who were killed by Winchester rifles, 
and that only continuous construction would appease them. The Boston medium, consulted by Mrs. Winchester, explained that her family and her fortune were being haunted by the spirits of American Indians, Civil War soldiers, and others killed by Winchester rifles. Supposedly, the untimely deaths of her daughter and husband were caused by these spirits, and it was implied that Mrs. Winchester might be the next victim. However, the medium also claimed that there was an alternative. Mrs. Winchester could move west and appease the spirits by building a great house for them. As long as construction of the house never ceased, Mrs. Winchester could feel secure in the knowledge that her life was not in danger. Building such a house was even supposed to bring her eternal life. On a more practical note, maybe a change of scenery and a constant hobby were just what Mrs. Winchester needed to alleviate her grief. Whatever her actual motivations, Mrs. Winchester packed her bags and left Connecticut to visit a niece who lived in Menlo Park, California. While there, she discovered the perfect spot for her new home in the Santa Clara Valley. In 1884, she purchased an unfinished farmhouse just three miles west of San Jose, and over the next 38 years, she produced the sprawling complex we know today as the Winchester Mystery House. The Winchester House is now a popular tourist attraction. It has also been the subject of investigation by a number of TV paranormal shows. The house is owned by Winchester Investments LLC, and it retains unique touches that reflect Mrs. Winchester's beliefs and her preoccupation with warding off malevolent spirits. These spirits are said to have directly influenced her as to exactly how the house should be built. Fright Nights is a specifically ticketed special nighttime event at the Winchester Mystery House. On select nights in September and October, Winchester Mystery House is transformed into San Jose's most terrifying Halloween experience, filled with haunted walk-through attractions, intense scares, roaming scare actors, and nightmare-inducing tales. Since Mrs. Winchester's death, hundreds of fascinating stories have appeared about this mysterious woman and her sprawling mansion. It seems odd that neither her relatives nor her former employees ever contradicted these stories, despite the fact that some of them lived more than 40 years after Mrs. Winchester's death. Did they feel threatened by talking, or did they deem it necessary to protect Mrs. Winchester's privacy, even after her death? Over the past three nights, I've had some recurring and very odd calls on my cell phone. The first happened early in the morning at half past four. I was lying in bed, sleeping with my phone on placed beside me on a nightstand as I was on call for work. At the above-mentioned time, my cell phone rang three times. I struggled to find the phone in the darkness, but I eventually did. I flipped it over to look at it and it was as if no one had called. Usually, two notifying icons light up with every call. I woke my girlfriend and asked her if she had heard it ring, and she said that she had. Yet there was no record of any incoming call, message, or anything on the phone. I've had the phone for about two years, and this has never happened before. 
We joked about it being weird during the day, and we had just recently returned from vacation. Part of our vacation was attempting some novice ghost hunting as our hotel was supposed to be haunted. Later that night, I set my phone beside the bed again. At just past three in the morning, again the phone rang three times. I was shocked. My girlfriend heard it again this time as well. Again, there was no sign or record on the phone of any incoming call at all. No messages, icons, alerts, or anything. I got up a few hours later and called my cell phone from my home phone to see if it was working okay. The phone rang normally. On the third night, I really wondered if it would happen again. Just after 3 a.m., it did. The phone again rang three times. This time I picked it up in between the second and third rings and looked at the face of the phone, and it looked as if there was no incoming call at all. Yet for the third night in a row, it rang three times with the same ringtone. Again, there was no indication on the phone of any calls at all, and the phone wasn't even set to that ringtone. Has anyone ever heard of this kind of thing before? I'm not sure it's a ghost, but I really do think that it is. I'd appreciate your comments or suggestions. This weekend archive of Weird Darkness returns in just a moment. You want the best sleep of your life? Well, I've already told you about how much I love MyPillow, but now they have these incredible Giza Dreams bedsheets. These sheets are made from the world's best cotton, Giza, which is only grown in a small region where the Sahara Desert, Mediterranean Sea, and the Nile River all meet to create the ideal weather conditions for growing Giza cotton. It's ultra-soft, it's breathable, it stays cool. Also, it's very durable. The Giza sheets are available in a variety of different colors, I went with dark gray for mine, and they come with both a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. I'm sleeping on these Giza Dreams bed sheets right now, and I can honestly say the first night you sleep on these sheets, you will not want to sleep on anything else. These even beat out the 1,500 thread count sheets that I was using before. But right now, Weird Darkness listeners can save 30% and get free shipping when you use the promo code WEIRD at MyPillow.com, or you can call 800 945 Again, use the promo code WEIRD for 30% off your new bed sheets, including free shipping at MyPillow.com. This episode is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your job, so you get qualified candidates fast. And right now, if you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash WeirdDarkness, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash WeirdDarkness. As a family, we love the beach so much that even when it rains, we're out on the beach when we take our yearly vacation. One year ago, we were on the beach looking for seashells. 
even though it was misting and a storm was starting to brew. My husband and our two oldest daughters decided to go back to the cottage to eat. Our four-year-old wanted to continue hunting for seashells. Well, as it happens with kids, as soon as they left, she decided that she wanted to catch up with them. Because they were only about 20 feet away, I called for them to wait on her. I made sure that they had her before I turned away to finish my seashell hunting. I walked for about 20 minutes until the weather started to turn really rough. The mist was heavier and the waves were churning. I have never seen such a rough sea, and so I turned back with a feeling of unexplained dread. I couldn't shake it. I looked out into the ocean and I could have sworn I saw my four-year-old drowning in the waves. I knew with absolute certainty that she was safe back in the cottage with her father and siblings, but yet there she was, drowning in the rough seas. I started wading into the water to try to help her. I was in a total state of panic. I was crying and absolutely hysterical. I knew that if I went in the water, I would drown. But there I was, going, even though I knew that it wasn't really my baby out there. I felt like something wanted me to go into the water so I would die. I had to fight the instinct to help her. Keep in mind that the thing in the water was the spitting image of her. I took off running to the cottage, crying the entire time. My young daughter greeted me at the door. I was never in my life so happy to see her. To this day, I am convinced that the thing in the water was her doppelganger trying to lure me to my own death. I know they say that you can only see your own double, but I wonder. I hope I never have this happen again. I hope this never happens to anyone who's hearing this. The desire to go into the water was stronger than any force I have ever known. I was 29 years of age at the time, currently 35, living by myself in a small ranch-style home. Being a psychotherapist, I've had plenty of experiences analyzing dreams. However, on this particular night, the task wasn't very simple. I had four dreams, all of which were continuations. Each dream was building off of each other. The first dream in the set of four is the one that I will discuss. In my dream, I woke and saw a teenage girl, probably 17 years of age, sitting at the foot of my bed. She was wearing short, tight jean shorts with a yellow top. I looked at her, puzzled, and asked, who are you? She didn't answer me and her effect was flat. The only movement was in her hands as she was twirling a little handheld American flag. What do you want? I asked as my interest in the event ballooned. I never received an answer. She looked at me once more and then proceeded to walk out of the room. The dream was over. A few days later, feeling the effect of the dream, I disclosed my experience to my girlfriend, who is now my wife. My wife, being a terrific artist, said, I'm going to sketch a picture of the girl you saw. Okay, 
I responded, excited to see the likeness. She drew the picture, and she drew it well. The picture that my girlfriend drew was dead on, no pun intended. Like most objects of mine, I put the picture away and forgot that it existed. Four years later. It was early morning when I arrived at the fitness center and hanging on to the front door was a flyer. It read, Missing Person. For the sake of the story, I will not disclose the individual's name. Nevertheless, the flyer caught my interest. Later that night, after I returned home from work, the story of the missing girl was on every news channel. I thought to myself, geez, she looks familiar. I asked my wife, do we know her? She said no. As days moved on, I kept thinking of the missing girl until one night my thoughts turned into an obsession. I was searching for an important document when I came across the picture that my wife drew four years prior and thought, holy crap, the girl in the picture and the missing person were one and the same. Even the clothes she was wearing when she was last seen were an exact match. I've never told anyone this story. However, I am investigating this case independently, not on a spiritual level because no one would believe me, but on a forensic, psychological level. This case has yet to be solved and is still an active investigation. You know, I lie awake almost every night wondering why. Maybe I'll never know. But until I find my answers, my life will be unfinished. I was on my way from Alabama, where I was working at the time, heading home. The journey took around two hours. I was turning left at a yellow light, confidently thinking that the truck several feet away was going to come to a stop. The truck hit the passenger side of my car at 50 miles per hour. Thank God no one was riding with me or they wouldn't be here today. My car was totaled. As the vehicle got closer to impact, the more things began to become a dream to me. All I remember is the truck hitting my vehicle in slow motion. Time went on and I was awoken by the touch of a presence upon my face, the touch of a lady. Being that she was on the passenger side, which was struck by the truck looking into the vehicle, I knew that she didn't reach in and touch me, but it was like a spiritual connection. As I awoke with this touch, I looked to my right to see a lady with red hair. I can't remember her clothing, but I asked what happened and she said, you've just been in an accident. I was still recovering and I responded by saying, for real? Kind of slow. She then said, yes, everything is going to be fine. The ambulance is on the way. I just groaned. I never noticed her leave my car. It was just a minute or less after our conversation that the police and ambulance arrived. The accident was so bad that it was already documented that there had been a fatality. Out of amazement, everyone saw a skinny 5-foot-9-inch 16-year-old kid get out of the vehicle with few scratches and no injuries. There was only one witness and he was a male. 
He claimed he saw everything because he was behind me. I told everyone about the lady with red hair, but they said there was only one witness to the accident, which was the man. Has anyone else had experiences like this? I believe I was touched by an angel, and my life was saved by God that day. While I was on the tube train heading for the above-ground train station where I always caught my train home, I experienced an odd event. I was sitting on a very crowded train and suddenly there was a bright flash of light and I found myself back on the train I had taken in the morning to get to work. I remember this because of the Korean or Chinese tourist sitting opposite me. He was not there on my ride home. As the train stopped at my station, I left, as I had done in the morning, and checked my watch. It told me the time was around 5.15 p.m., the time that it was when the event occurred, or must have been, considering I caught the train at 5.10 p.m. and was on it for several minutes, though I cannot be sure of the exact real time when the event occurred as I was not monitoring my watch constantly. I checked the electronic timetable on the platform, which told me it was 8.48 a.m., which is about the time I get off that train every morning. The attendant told me I looked very pale and asked me if I needed any help. The voices around us became quieter. Then there was another white flash of light. When the flash died down, I was sitting in my office. I checked the time on my computer, however I hovered my mouse over it for a little too long and the date showed. It was the day before the event occurred. I ran out into the main office and asked my secretary what time it was. She told me it was about lunchtime. Lunchtime for my business is between 12 noon and 2 p.m. I headed back into my office, scribbled on a piece of paper, folded it, and handed it to my secretary, asking her to give it to me the next day and tell me to put it in my front pocket. She looked baffled, but I'm the one who pays her salary, so she agreed. As I turned away, she made a comment on how pale I looked. I said something about a headache, and she said something quietly. There was another flash of light, and I was back on the train that I had been on at the beginning of these episodes. I checked my front pocket. The scribbled note was not there. Though I am convinced that I was probably hallucinating, and I have seen the doctor about this, who claims it may be related to migraines. place about seven or eight years ago. I had just moved to Las Vegas with my wife of 20 years. We were small-town folk from the Midwest. We moved cross-country being naive and new to city living. 
I habitually answered the door without a second thought. I had never even heard of a black-eyed kid until this incident. The first thing that should have tipped me off to the strangeness of this situation was the fact that someone was knocking at 4.30 a.m. The second thing that should have dawned on me is this kid had to reach over a rather tall patio gate to unlatch and open it, which I tried to do later and couldn't manage. I'm not sure how he managed to get into my yard. The knock at the door was startling. My wife and I were getting ready for work, a pretty normal routine. The moment I opened the door, I was overtaken with an inexplicable sense of fear. Literally, I went from being relaxed to shaking like a leaf. To this day, I can picture him. Teenager, around five foot, average build, knee-length black leather coat, short black hair and sunglasses, eating an apple standing on the other side of my door. He was very polite and asked if he could come in and warm up. I said no, closed the door, and slid the security chain in place. A moment later, another knock. I opened the now chained door, and before I could speak, he asked again if he could come in and warm up. I said no again and attempted to close the door. Before the door could shut, he put his hand out, stopping the door on its hinges. He looked directly into my eyes, still wearing his sunglasses, and said, Can I at least get some ketchup for my apple? Not a chance, I replied. My wife is currently calling the police. He smiled and just said, No, you won't be calling anybody. At that moment, I pushed the door closed, locked it, and called out to my wife. She thought I had been talking to myself. She didn't even hear him talk. I pulled the curtains back to look out the window next to the door. He wasn't there. There was no trace of him. I go out on the patio and check the gate. It's still latched from the inside. My wife didn't believe me until that evening when she returned home and saw a half-eaten apple on the top step outside of our house. That's the freakiest bit. The damn half-eaten apple hadn't been there when I had checked the yard. Yet, a few hours later, it was sitting on my step, waiting for us to return home. When I was still in high school, a strange set of events occurred to me. It all began one night when my two younger sisters were in their bedroom on the second floor of our house with the door open. I was downstairs watching TV with my parents and had decided to go upstairs because it was late and I was ready for bed. When I went into the bedroom, my youngest sister looked at me and laughed she asked why I had been on the stairs waving at her and smiling before. My middle sister said she hadn't seen me, but the youngest insisted that she had. I told her she was crazy and that I had been downstairs the whole time. She kept insisting I was there, but I told her she was dreaming and I went to bed. A few days later, my sister told me that she had seen me again, this time on the third floor staircase. I tried to explain to her that I had not been up there all day. 
Once again, she insisted and I argued with her, telling her to stop lying. Still, a few days later, she and my youngest male cousin ran into my room and told me that they had just seen me downstairs. I had peered from behind a wall, smiled and waved, then hid again. My youngest cousin saw me first and pointed it out to my little sister. They both knew, though, that I was upstairs and freaked out. I was a little weirded out at this point, but told them to calm down. Maybe it was their imagination. About a week or so later, I came home from school in the afternoon. My dad was sitting in his usual chair next to the bookcase. I threw down my backpack and said, hey, as he looked at me funny. He said, where did you go? I replied that I went to school just as I do every day. He then told me that I came home at lunchtime, bent down to get a book and went upstairs to my room. He thought I was up there the whole time. I told him, no, I've been in school all day. He said he must have fallen asleep without realizing it. We thought nothing more of it. I remembered that my sister and my cousin also claimed to see me when I was not around and decided to tell my mother about these events. She thought about it and said she remembered that when I was very young, my grandfather was alone in my living room talking to someone. My mother went in and asked him who he was talking to, and he said, to Bumpy. My mother informed him that I wasn't home that day. I was with the rest of my cousins at my aunt's house. My grandfather looked around and came to the same conclusion my father did. He said that he must have fallen asleep. My mother decided to consult an expert, who told her to get rid of the Ouija board that I had. I gave it to my mother, and she disposed of it. Since then, nothing strange has happened. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Fact or fiction, you can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com, and I might use it in a future episode. You can find links to all of the stories in this episode in the show notes. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. The newest title on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com is Murderous Minds Volume 3 – Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines by Ryan Becker, narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. To what lengths will someone go in order to survive? Does the survival instinct override their conscience and allow them to commit not only murder but also the taboo act of cannibalism? What happens when a person crosses the line from dark fantasy to real-life acts of brutal rape, murder, and cannibalism? Are these people driven by a desire so insatiable that they are incapable of controlling it? Murderous Minds Volume 3 – Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines is the latest offering in a series that takes you inside the lives of killers who committed cold-blooded murder for a glimpse at events that drove them to kill. Authored within a historical context, each chapter is an unbelievable venture inside the dark and twisted world of cannibal killers 
whose names and crimes might not be familiar to you. Among the killers in this audiobook, you will hear about Joachim Kroll, the diminutive man who collected dolls and loved little girls, but who especially loved eating the little girls he lured with sweets, not unlike the witch from Hansel and Gretel. Alfred Packer, a man who unapologetically cannibalized men that he was hired to lead through the wilderness, but who he instead led to their doom. Sutomo Miyazaki, deformed from birth, a man whose mind became as twisted as his hands until he could no longer resist the urge to attack and cannibalize young girls. By weaving a tale in which dark fantasies become reality, this audiobook invites you to see life from a perspective very few witness – the perspective of the killer. Along with a historical look at cannibalism through the ages, these stories beg the listener to answer the question, was the murderer committing cannibalism because he was incapable of resisting the urge to kill and consume, or is the explanation simply pure evil? Get your copy today and decide what you feel actually took place in these murderous minds. Murderous Minds Volume 3 – Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines by Ryan Becker Narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar Hear a free sample and get the title for yourself on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com.